Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 6. Job chapter 6. We're going to be looking at two full chapters, so you'll need a Bible to follow along. These brothers have some Bibles, so they're going to make their way toward the back. If you need one, get their attention. They'll give you one of those that is marked for you at Job chapter 6. Every four years, there are a couple of states in our nation, states about which you would not normally care at all. But these two states become big news that apparently everyone cares about. In every presidential election year, Iowa and New Hampshire get almost nonstop news coverage. And that's because those who are running for president are in those states regularly campaigning for votes. And since the presidential candidates are there, the media are there also. And we hear about Iowa and New Hampshire early on in the election year and even before that. Now, why do these politicians care especially about those two states? Well, it's because they will each hold their elections to nominate presidential candidates before the rest of the country does. And so the idea is, from the candidate's standpoint, if you win early in the Iowa caucuses or the New Hampshire primary, then you'll have momentum going into the states that follow. You'll be perceived as a winner, someone to be reckoned with. And that will give you a bounce going forward because people like to identify with a winner. So important is this idea that would-be presidents begin visiting those two states before the election, in fact, years before the election, cultivating relationships, building campaign infrastructure, and just getting their name out to the state's voters. Now, the politicians who do this, who put time and money into two relatively small and otherwise not especially important states, what they're counting on is something called the bandwagon effect. The bandwagon effect has been defined this way. It's a psychological phenomenon in which people do something primarily because other people are doing it. Other people are doing it, and I don't want to be out of step. They must know something that I don't, so I should jump on the bandwagon and go along. Now, this concept is used not only in politics, but it's used and has been used for years in advertising as well. Some of you are old enough to remember that McDonald's used to keep track on their red sign with the golden arches of how many burgers it had sold worldwide. They would actually have a number up there. It would say many years ago something like 27 million served and then 200 million served. And today there have been so many it just says billions and billions served. And the idea is everybody's buying McDonald's hamburgers. That was the whole point of telling us how many had been served. What everyone else thinks can have a powerful effect on us. It's why fashion is just that. Because what's in fashion is what's in. And what's in is what everyone else is wearing. What others are saying can influence us, even in ways that are harmful to us. Someone accused of a crime will sometimes confess because during interrogation he becomes convinced that he must have done it as the investigators wear him down with so-called evidence of his guilt. 
Now, in the book of Job, we see the temptation to succumb to the bandwagon effect. Job has lost everything except his life. And what's left of his life is so unbearable, we're going to see that he wishes he were dead. In chapter 1, we see that in a single day, all his possessions and his ten children are gone. At the end of that chapter and into chapter 2, Job responds initially with incredible faith in the face of the most extreme adversity. Not only accepting what God has allowed, but praising God in the midst of it. But as time goes on, the trauma of what he's experienced settles in and Job's anguish is deepened. That mental torment is amplified when three friends hear about his plight and they arrange a visit. Chapter 2 and verse 12 says, when they saw Job, quote, they could hardly recognize him. In chapter 3, Job speaks out of his misery and the friends listen. But last week, if you were with us, you know that we saw in chapters 4 and 5 that the leader of this group of three friends, a man named Eliphaz, finally speaks up. And what he says is devastating to Job. Eliphaz indicts Job for wrongdoing because he and his friends are convinced of something called the uh, retributive principle, that God retributes to you what you have done, whether good or evil. God gives good to those who do good and bad to those who sin. And Eliphaz chides Job for implying that Job has no sin, and he urges him to come clean on what he's done that has brought on this calamity. In looking at chapters 4 and 5 last week, I said that counsel from others can be ignorant counsel. And Eliphaz's is just that. And it's ignorant, just meaning not to know. That's ignorant is not necessarily a slur. It just means you don't know something, but it's ignorant in that he does not know. What we do from chapters 1 and 2. We have the benefit of seeing behind the scenes what was going on that led to all of Job's misery. And we know that these problems are not due to anything that Job has done. In fact, we know from reading chapters 1 and 2 that it's quite the contrary. The very reason that Satan wants a run at Job is because of Job's devotion to God and the fact that it's so exemplary. Job's three friends don't know that. And so they draw their conclusions based on assumptions that Job has sinned because that's what they've always understood and believed. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. They don't know the real story. But neither does Job. Job doesn't know the real story either. He doesn't know why all this is happening. Job is not only afflicted by the losses he's endured, his livelihood, his family, and his own health, he's also suffering from his own ignorance of why this is happening. He's in anguish as he tries to make sense of the chaos that's engulfed his life. And now he has friends who come along who are absolutely convinced and they're seeking to persuade Job of what to them is obvious. God is dealing with you severely because you have sinned. So why doesn't Job just confess and get it over with? Eliphaz has made the case in chapters 4 and 5 that everyone sins, and surely that includes Job. 
So why not just admit that and conclude, like everyone else has, that you're suffering due to your sin? Jump on the bandwagon, Job. It may indeed be easier for Job to do that. But he doesn't. And in fact, not only doesn't he, he can't. And he can't because he knows it would be a reflection on God. You see, friends, that's because what's really at stake here is not what the friends think and really not even what Job is going through. But the question that all of this raises is what is God like? What does it say about God that Job is suffering as he is? Today we're going to see a man who steadfastly refused to join the crowd and jump on the bandwagon. Job stood against false ideas about God. And we need that same kind of steadfastness in the face of false notions about God that are bandied about by even sometimes well-meaning people. So let's ask God to help us then as we look at what he says about this important matter. Father, we thank you for another Lord's Day and the opportunity to be where we are right now. We thank you, Lord, that for many of us, by your grace, not because of any goodness in us, but by your grace, you have moved on our hearts so that we want this. We're not just here because we have to be, because it's an obligation, because someone else brought us. We're here because we want to be. We want to learn of you. We want to know about you. And we want to better than serve you. And Lord, whatever category we're in, no matter why we are here, we are thankful for you that every person here is seated in this auditorium now. And we ask you, Lord, to move on our hearts so that we understand you better and those who came into this room not knowing you, that they would begin a relationship with you today. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, each week we have an outline for the message so that you can follow along. We have that inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take it out as we see two major points from these two chapters, 6 and 7, in the book of Job. The first is this. We must take care with our thoughts about God. We must take care with our thoughts about God. Now, Job's friend Eliphaz has just finished admonishing, admonishing Job about justifying himself. So now in chapter 6, Job explains how he's feeling and why he has spoken as he did back in chapter 3. Now, as I go through these two chapters, I'm going to be doing a kind of running commentary through the verses and then make application at the end. But verse 1 of chapter 6. Then Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery placed on the scales... It would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. Merchants in the ancient world would use scales to weigh commodities that they were selling or or buying. And so Job refers to these scales and weighing his anguish on one side and the sands of the seas on the on the other. And he says if that if my anguish could be weighed, that word anguish has the sense of despair. Job is here doing what the psalmists in the book of Psalms often did. In adversity, they turned to God in their anguish to plead for his intervention on their behalf. 
And so you'll read things like Psalm number 10 in a number of places in the 150 chapters that is the book of Psalms. God, see the trouble of the afflicted. That is, same word for the anguish that Job is experiencing. See the trouble of the anguished. You consider their grief and take it in hand. So Job is saying, because my anguish is so great that it could outweigh the sand of the seas, then at the end of verse 3, he says, no wonder my words have been impetuous. So he's being taken to task in chapters 4 and 5 by his friend Eliphaz for talking as he did in chapter 3, seeking to understand what's going on with them, justifying his, his own life. He's done nothing that would deserve what has, has come upon him. And so he says, no wonder my words then have been impetuous given how great the misery is. My misery is so great, but if that were not enough, I'm convinced, says Job in chapter 6, this misery is from God. Verse 4. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. So here's Job saying that God has, in effect, shot me with arrows, plural. Now, in the Old Testament, God is, first part of your Bible, God is often pictured as a divine warrior who fights for, on behalf of, his people. For example, the prophet Zephaniah. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. But in these words, in chapter 6, Job feels that instead of being his faithful protector, God has become his fierce enemy. He feels that he has become target practice for God. And again, he is echoing words like the psalmists would use from time to time in their difficulties. Psalm number 38, your arrows have pierced me. Your hand has come down on me. Job and the psalmist are expressing what in church history has been called the dark night of the soul. Periods of time when God's people would go through very deep difficulties. And it would lead them to anguish and introspection and questions. And Job's sentiments in chapter 6 and verse 4 closely parallel those in Psalm 88. one One of the darkest chapters in all of the Bible, Psalm 88. It says, I've suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. It goes on to say, you have taken from me friend and neighbor. And this is how Psalm 88 ends. Darkness is my closest friend. So this is how Job is is feeling. He's trying to explain this to these these friends of of his. He goes on in chapter or verse five of chapter six. Does a wild donkey bray when it has grass or an ox bellow when it has fodder? Is tasteless food eaten without salt? Or is there flavor in the sap of the mallow? I refuse to touch it. Such food makes me ill. He's saying, look, even a a donkey or an ox, if they have what they need, they don't yell out. It's when they don't have it. It's when it's deprived, when they are deprived of it. And that's what's happened to me here. And then in the second part of that passage where he says this tasteless food eaten without salt, he implies that Eliphaz's words are completely unhelpful. 
His friend has not nourished him with life-giving instruction. What he has said is worthless. It's tasteless and totally unappetizing. So Job says, I refuse to touch it. He refuses to accept it. Then in verse 8, Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut off my life. Then I would still have my joy in unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have that I should still hope? What prospects that I should be patient? Do I have the strength of stone? Is my flesh bronze? Do I have any power to help myself now that success has been driven from me? Job, after a while now in this affliction, we'll talk briefly about how long it has been in just a bit. But he's been in this affliction for a while now. And he wants clear resolution to his situation, whatever that resolution might be. And so he calls on God either to bless him or to curse him, but not to leave him in the miserable condition he's in. If God would take his life, then that will provide great relief from his pain. But notice Job doesn't talk about suicide. Instead, he leaves his life in God's hands. All that matters to Job is his integrity. At the end of verse 10, he says he wants to avoid at all costs denying God. So he does not want to get to the breaking point where he may do that very thing. In verse 14, Job moves from implying that the words of his friend are worthless to directly accusing him of a lack of love. Verse 14. Anyone who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Eliphaz, this is what you've done. This is how deep is my anguish. And you come to me and accuse me. Your words are unhelpful. They are tasteless. They are worthless. And in issuing these words, you are not loving me. You've withheld loving kindness. In fact, that word translated kindness in verse 14 is a Hebrew word, hesed. It's frequently used in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, for the faithful kindness of the Lord to his people. And Job is saying, Eliphaz, you have not shown this loving kindness to me. But it's said of the Lord in Jeremiah chapter 9, I am the Lord who exercises kindness, the same word. Justice and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. The wisdom instruction in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 3 says this. Let love, again that same word, and faithfulness never leave you. But Job's friends failed to do that in their response to Job. When the going has gotten tough for Job, his friends are not there with the love that they ought to have if they're truly friends. Job goes on then to indict them for this lack of love. Verse 15. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams. Now just let me stop there. Notice he says, my brothers. <laughs> I, thought we, I thought we were close. We're not just friends, my brothers. And yet you have shown yourself to be as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow. 
but they stop flowing in the dry season and then the heat vanish from their channels. Verse 18, caravans turn aside from their routes. They go off into the wasteland and perish. The caravans of Tima look for water. The traveling merchants of Sheba look in hope. They are distressed because they had been confident. They arrive there only to be disappointed. Uses this example of streams that are not dependable. They're mirages for travelers. They're intermittent streams in that part of the world, sometimes called wadis. They are stream beds that were dry during most of the year, but after storms they would become raging torrents of water. And these wadis are like Job's friends because they could not be counted on as a reliable source of support. That passage mentions these travelers from Tima. That's an oasis in in northern Arabia. And then these traveling merchants of Sheba. They're probably South Arabians from Sheba whose descendants became wealthy traders in spices and gold and precious stones. And so you've got one set of traders from the northern part of Arabia, another from the south, but both with the same need for water and both disappointed by potential water sources that they glimpsed at a distance that turned out to be dry wadis. And that's what you guys are like to me. In verse 21, now you too have proved to be of no help, just like those dry stream beds. You see something dreadful and are afraid. Job may be saying that the friends have seen his adversity, and so they rush to speak against him to avoid something terrible happening to them like it's happened to Job. That is, now just think about this. They're convinced that Job is being punished for doing something or some things wrong or failing to do right. And it would be wrong in their mind to know his problem, which they're convinced that they do. This has happened to you because you have sinned in some way. To know his problem and fail to denounce it would be wrong in their part. And so they rush to speak against him because they fear that the same principle is going to work against them if they don't speak against Job. And so you see something dreadful and you are afraid, says Job. He reminds them of their relationship and how they have betrayed that relationship. In verse 22, have I ever said, give something on my behalf, pay a ransom for me from your wealth, deliver me from the hand of the enemy, rescue me from the clutches of the ruthless? In our friendship, brothers, I've never asked for anything. Our friendship has not been mercenary. I have not been in relationship with you in order to see what I can get out of it. Our relationship has been based on friendship, at least on my end, says Job. Verse 24, teach me and I will be quiet. Show me where I've been wrong. How painful are honest words, but what do your arguments prove? Do you mean to correct what I say and treat my desperate words as wind? You guys have not proven your case against me. Saying that we all sin is just a truism. That's what Eliphaz said, as we saw last week in chapters 4 and 5. It's true of everyone all the time. But it doesn't answer the question of why I'm going through this in particular. I will speak honest words to you, 
Verse 25. By asking rhetorically, what have you proven? The implied answer is nothing. Where is your correction of my claim? The implied answer is nowhere. You're just ignoring my claim and not dealing with it at all. And then he gets really direct. Verse 27. You would even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friend. Yow. That you would, if you would use me in this way and turn on me in this way, then that says something about your character such that you would use those who are the most defenseless, like I am so vulnerable at this point. When he says the fatherless, he's invoking something that throughout the first part of your Bible is used along with categories of people like widows and foreigners, people who are vulnerable, defenseless, and powerless. And God shows special concern for these classes of marginalized people, and he insists that they be treated with kindness and generosity. You see this in a number of places, but I'll give you one in Deuteronomy 24. Where the law says, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. So with all of that, as he ends his talk to his friends in verse 28, Job says, "Be, but now be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Look at me, he says. They've been talking about him as an object rather than to him as a person. And Job begs with them to look at him instead of averting their eyes from his hideous appearance. And to acknowledge that he's indeed Job, their friend, a real person who has genuine needs in this situation. There's also the implication that since the friends know that their accusations are false, they don't dare look Job in the eye. Verse 29, relent, do not be unjust. Reconsider, for my integrity is at stake. Job appeals to their sense of justice because he believes he's been wrongfully accused by his friends. And he calls on them to evaluate his character rightly as being innocent, not to rush to condemn him as guilty. That term for integrity in verse 29 can have the idea of vindication. That is the public declaration that Job is in the right. And applying this retribution principle, Job's friends construe his adversity to be evidence of his guilt. But Job contends that their conclusion is unjust and not true to the facts. And he's asking them to acknowledge that. And then lastly, finally, in verse 30. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? You haven't proven it. You haven't shown it. Job is unwilling to join the verdict of his friends about him. He's unwilling to jump on the bandwagon. And so in chapter 6, he fires back. And yes, he does so out of hurt and out of anguish, but also out of concern for the truth, both about himself, but also about God. You see, there is something Job knows that they do not. Neither of them knows, neither of the, none of the four of them know about what we read in chapters 1 and 2. About the challenge that Satan made to God and the permission that Satan asked 
to afflict Job. Job doesn't know that. The three friends don't know that. But there's something Job knows that these other three friends don't. And that's this. That Job has been the same as he's ever been. See, Job knows that. He knows that although he's not perfect, although he's not sinless, he's not claiming to be sinless. But there's nothing different about his life before the day that all of this calamity happened to him and the day after. His life was the same. But they don't know that. They had to travel to be with him. They're not with him every moment of every day. They don't know that. They assume that can't be true. Otherwise, these things wouldn't be happening, a la the retribution principle that we've mentioned. Job knows that he's as faithful and devoted and righteous as he was when God had given him all the blessings that are recounted in chapter 1. But Job, too, assumes the general validity of this retribution principle. If you do good, it turns out well. If you don't, it doesn't. So he can't understand why his life has turned so dramatically from blessing to adversity. The friends say it's because Job is sinful and deserving of punishment. Job maintains that he is as righteous as he has ever been. So as Job looks at this retribution principle, he's saying this, I'm righteous, so why is this happening? As the friends look at this retribution principle, they're saying, this is happening, so you're clearly not righteous. And Job knows he's the same. But the friends don't. And neither of them knows the real reason that it's happening, this test, this challenge that we're told of in chapter 1 between God and Satan. But Job knows one thing that cannot be the reason. He knows it cannot be the case that this is happening because I suddenly became displeasing to God. I'm the same guy that I was the day before this happened. Job knows his character and they do not. And remember, character is who you are when no one is looking. Job knows he's the same. Now hear this. And Job assumes that God does too. I mean, I know this. The friends don't. They won't believe me. But God is omniscient. He knows this. So Job is left with a huge dilemma. Not so much about the friends, but about God. Because God sees what is in secret. So he knows what they do not. And this now is a challenge to Job's belief in God. What do I believe about God? Job could modify his belief and say God does not know everything, it turns out. But Job can't bring himself to do that. And since God knows my heart and my life, even if these guys don't, then why is God doing this? And that presents Job with another temptation to modify his belief about God. He could say, perhaps God does know that I'm the same as I was when he was blessing me. But maybe he can't stop this. But Job knows that God is not only omniscient, that is, he knows everything, God is sovereign. He has authority over everything. He controls everything. He can do as he will. And so you see the dilemma that Job is in. 
This all says something about, about God, and I, Job, can't figure it out. He can't figure it out because he doesn't know why this is happening like we do. And his, and his turmoil is made all the more intense as he has friends who come to him and accuse him and speak ignorantly. Now, I spoke about false counsel last week, so I won't spend a lot of time on this. But I will say to you, friends, this bandwagon effect is powerful. Because when one person comes to you and accuses you of something, it's one thing. When another person joins in and another person joins in and a bunch of people join in, that is powerful and powerfully hurtful. I don't remember a ton of things about my childhood that that scares me, that I can't remember stuff. But every now and then I remember some episodes. And I do remember episodes of of having arguments and fights with my friends. You know, as a a little kid in Little League and just out playing and so on. uh, Different times having arguments. And then you would argue the case, who's the best baseball player, you know, in the major leagues. And we'd we'd argue about that as if we could prove that one way or another. And then it would get heated when we couldn't agree. And then finally it would become ad hominem. You know what I mean by that? You attack the person, not the position. Well, you're an idiot. That would eventually come out. But here was the killer. I still remember how this would sting. Okay, you think I'm an idiot. You're an idiot and I'm not the only one who thinks so. Oh, man. I remember the first time I heard that. Yikes. My mind is just spinning. Wow. You've taken a poll of like a bunch of people. And they all say, I'm an idiot. How many people have been thinking this all this time? My 10-year-old life is over. So he has these friends and they're compelling him to join their side, but he can't because this is ultimately about who God is. And what do we believe about God? Now hear this, friends. You will be and you are challenged with beliefs about God. And the most important thing that you can hold on to with all that you are and all that you have is a right and truthful belief about God. So when someone comes to you and says, in the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of perhaps a difficult relationship, quote, God doesn't want you to be unhappy. You ask them for a chapter and verse on that. You see, because the true and living God, the true God, is concerned less about your happiness than he is about your holiness. And if it requires your unhappiness for you to become holy, then God will do that. That's the true God. It's not the fake God. It's not the water cooler God where people give you false counsel about who he is. It's not the God of health and wealth and prosperity. That's a false God. That's the God of the TV preachers who are taking your money. Stop watching them. Have I told you that before? It is not the God of Arminianism. 
Arminius was a figure in church history. But his God was different than the God of John Calvin. Calvin said this God can and does do anything that pleases him. And he has control over everything that happens in his world. That's the way God's presented himself in Scripture. It's not the weak God who is at our beck and call and who needs to be apologized for. So friends, we must maintain, as Job steadfastly maintained, his belief in true thoughts about God. We must take care with our thoughts about God. And I say in your outline, we must take our cares directly to God. We must take our cares directly to God. As I've said, the issue now is not primarily the friends, but God. So in chapter 7, beginning in verse 7, Job speaks directly to God. And in fact, throughout the remainder of the book of Job, Job more and more is going to turn away from the friends and address God. And by the end of the book, it's just the Lord and Job who are left speaking. So we should take our cares directly to God. And I've got three types of cares that we should take to God. The first is this, we should bring our feelings to Him. So here's Job in all of this. He knows nothing's changed about him, but he believes God knows all and God can do all. And he's not going to modify that, but it leaves him in this great dilemma because he has been taught, as have the friends, that if you do good, it turns out good. So why isn't it? So in verse 1, Do not mortals have hard service on earth? Are not their days like those of hired laborers, like a slave longing for the evening shadows or a hired laborer waiting to be paid? When he talks about this hard service in verse 1, he's using the language of being conscripted into the military, being drafted into the military. It's the same term that was used of Solomon conscripting uh, workers for his projects. The Bible says King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month. This picture in verses 1 and 2 of humans toiling for long days to earn meager wages is in stark contrast to the exalted position that God has given to humanity in the very first chapter of the Bible, made in His image and made to rule His world for Him. Job's perspective, which is now distorted by his pain, It appears that God uses humans as though they're mere agents of labor. Verse 3. I've been allotted months of futility and nights of misery have been assigned to me. This is this length of time now that this has been going on. He says months of futility. So in the narrative, as you read through Job, it looks like all of this is happening just very quickly. But remember that it took some time for the friends to hear about Job's plight and then to get their itinerary together and then to travel to where he is so that now... In chapter 7, this has been going on for months. Verse 4, when I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on. I toss and turn until dawn. My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. The worms, an image of decay as they feed on decomposing corpses. And then in verse 6, yes, verse 6. He speaks of his life being like threads at the end of a a weaver's shuttle. My days are swifter than, in verse 6, than a weaver's shuttle. And they come to an end without hope. 
And the words end and hope in Hebrew are a play on a play on words. Job feels as useless as the small ends of the thread that are snapped off a loom after the weaving is done. And so Job's life is fragile and precarious. And because he's at the end of his thread, he's without hope. But see, this doesn't fit with this retribution principle because those who love God should have this joy. Proverbs 10 says the prospect of the righteous is joy, but the hopes of the wicked come to nothing. In chapter 4 and verse 6, Eliphaz insists that the righteous have hope. Your blameless ways should be your hope, he says there. And so this is how Job is feeling, and he's taking this directly to God. We should take our feelings directly to God. But I say in your outline, we should bring our fears to him as well. Remember, O God, verse 7, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will see happiness, will never see happiness again. The eye that now sees me will see me no longer. You will look for me, but I will be no more as a cloud vanishes and gone. So no one who goes down to the grave does not return. He who will never come to his house again, his place will know him no more. Job's saying it's not only that bad, it's going to end this way. That's how little hope that he has. Therefore, verse 11, because of all that, I will not keep silent. I will speak out of the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Verse 12, am I the sea or the monster of the deep that you put me under guard? Job refuses to be muzzled. And here he speaks of, in verse 12 as of the sea or the monster of the deep. There was the mythological yam and tanin. And they corresponded to the sea and the monster of the deep. And they were muzzled. And Job says, I will not be muzzled like that. Verse 13. When I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint. Even then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. So he's going directly to God. And he knows that God is ultimately in control of even these difficult things that are happening to him. We take our cares directly to God, our feelings, our fears, and lastly, our frustrations. Our frustrations. Verse 16, I despise my life. I would not live forever. I don't want to live forever. Who would want to live like this forever? Let me alone. My days have no meaning. And when he says my days have no meaning, he's using this famous Hebrew word hevel. It's used in by Solomon in Ecclesiastes where it says famously there, right at the beginning of that marvelous book, meaningless, meaningless, that is hevel, hevel, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Viewing life from under the sun and with what I have going on in my life, it's all meaningless, enigmatic. Verse 17, what is mankind that you make so much of him that you give them so much attention that you examine them every morning and test them every moment? Does that remind you of a passage in the Bible? What is man that you think of him? Well, Psalm number 8 says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings, that you care for them? And then finally in verse 19, Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant if I have sinned? He's talking to God. What have I done to you? You who see everything we do. Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust and you will search me, but I will be no more. 
We take our cares directly to God. And yet we take our cares as believing people like Job is. You know all, you control all, control all. So Lord, I don't understand. And this is how I'm feeling and this is what I fear and this is how I am, I am then frustrated. And you see that throughout the psalmists. We are bidden in the New Testament by the Apostle Peter, cast all your care on him. But notice this last thing. Because he cares for you. In the midst of all of it, hear this, friends. In the midst of all of it, God is ultimately doing something good. Ultimately, God is not doing something to you. Ultimately, he is doing something for you. He is teaching you about you. He is teaching you about himself. And so your take-home truth. We must be careful how we think about God. We must bring our thoughts to God. We must be careful how we think about God and bring our thoughts to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you again for the true story and true record of the life of Job. We thank you, Lord, that you have told us what Job did not know, what his friends did not know. And Lord, we thank you that we know still much more than Job knew because of all that you have revealed in your word since that time. We know more about your plan for us. We know more about you because Jesus has come and God has come in the flesh. And so we know what God is like. And we know that this God who allows suffering for his good purposes was also willing to suffer for greater purposes. And so, Lord, we know this. But Job did not know these things. Lord, we thank you for his faith in the midst of his ignorance. Lord, we ask you to help us then to appropriate the things that you have told us about yourself. We know these things. Because we know them, we must apply them. And then on the things we don't know and we don't understand, help us, Lord, to trust you as did your servant Job. We pray this to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.